first time since 1995, Ireland are going to take on New Zealand in a Rugby World Cup. Back then, Ireland were the no-hopers of World Rugby, perennial wooden spoon winners, and really didn't have much of a chance. Even since then, Ireland have not progressed past the World Cup quarter-final. Now they meet the fabled All-Backs, the double World Cup champions, in a quarter-final. There's an argument to be made that this could be the biggest game in Irish rugby history, Irish World Cup history for sure. Mick McCarthy here along with Morris Brosnan welcoming you to World in Union, our weekly uh, rugby podcast. Morris, are you, uh, have I undersold it or oversold it or no, I correctly sold it? You've perfectly sold it, yeah. It's a, it's an unbelievably exciting ring. It's definitely, like I, given the context of the, this team, this coach and the history that's behind them, this is definitely the biggest game I think for in Irish rugby. I think the, there's no question about that. Um, it was, I think it was Steve Hansen who was in after the Ireland Betham in Dublin who was only too happy to declare that Ireland are now the best team in mm-hmm. world rugby. Yeah, um, good old Steve. Yeah, but at least now they have a chance to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You know, for all the for all the argument about trying to, you know, avoid them and get South Africa and everything like that, you know, if Ireland do see themselves as winners, I'd probably prefer to play New Zealand in a quarterfinal than I would in a semi or a final. I think that's where they could be caught. You know, if we're good enough, we'll beat them or at least give them enough of a good game that we'll come out with our heads heads held high. If they're at their very, very best, we won't win. We know that. But there's always that chance. And why not? Why not give it a go? What's the point in just getting to the fabled semi-final for the sake of it by falling over the line? It'll be the first time in three World Cups that we're not favourites going into a World Cup quarterfinal, which will be an interesting one. Lots of other stuff. By the way, just want to let you know what's coming up on this show. We will talk all about Ireland and Zealand. Morris is going to tell you how we're going to win, if we're going to win. And we'll look ahead to what Joe's going to pick for his possibly his final team as an Ireland coach. We will also talk about all the other quarterfinals and all the other stories from the Rugby World Cup. But we have a very special guest on the show tonight because you... Uh, um, are going to be speaking to Australian legend, the man who scored the try in the corner to deny Ireland their f- previous uh, most famous, most disappointing World Cup quarterfinal defeat in Lansdowne Road in 1991. Michael Lina, Aussie legend. Yeah, um, like, and I think Ireland have a real kind of obsession with what outside influences perceive, like the, to be told they're great by outside influences, and that really hasn't happened this World Cup. Basically, everyone else thinks we're very boring. Um, mm-hmm. probably fairly enough really based off the evidence at this tournament but my, Michael Lyon is an interesting guy in terms of that he like um, when he's spoken about these kind of things in the past he like has kind of a, a real appreciation for the I imagine himself and Schmidt would be quite closely aligned like he appreciates good breakdown work he appreciates all the kind of the ugly stuff that I'd like to watch back as well and things like that as well so it'd be good to get into kind of the nitty gritty of that and see just exactly what is his impression of this this iteration of violence looking forward to it the 1901 quarter final i'm sure you're aware but even though it was before your time it's almost before my time to be honest i think i was only six or something when it <laughs> happened but like it was the most perfect illustration of how shite ireland were in the amateur era because we somehow managed this miracle win against a team that would go on to win the world cup with this breakaway try in the corner you know, Lansdowne Road gets invaded. There's two minutes left. They have to score a try to beat us. I think there were four points down, you know, or it was four, maybe it was four points for a try back then. I'm not sure. But, and, and then a thousand phases later, Michael Lina goes over in the in corner, the corner yeah. and we've had glorious defeat yet again, you know, in, in a World Cup quarterfinal in our home stadium. But, uh, four years later though, Ireland played New Zealand in the the game I mentioned at the start of the tournament. I have fond memories of watching the Ireland beating Wales by a point, two awful teams in that World Cup, and that's how we got to the quarterfinal where we would be hammered by France. But the New Zealand game is one of the more famous Ireland-New Zealand moments uh, because Ireland did get an early try and went ahead, as we kind of tended to do against New Zealand then. And uh, Gary Halpin, the Irish yeah. prop, you know, decided to <laughs> rub it in the face of the, the Kiwis, <laughs> the All Blacks, uh, you know, because Ireland were clearly going to, you know, romp the victory and top the group. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, John Alomu running, does it, you know, when people think of John Alomu at the 95 World Cup, there's always that image of him running over England defenders and Rory Underwood and Mike Catt in particular, as he just kind of like stomped over them. If you actually watch the highlights of the Ireland game, he was genuinely just knocking guys over <laughs> like a computer game standing on them as he went past them we were abs- like he absolutely destroyed him that's amazingly I can't believe that's the last time we've played New Zealand in a World Cup and it's only kind of now when we're talking about it that it's actually happening this week that you realise how big a deal that is that it's like we have somehow avoided we play France in every World Cup nearly you know and we somehow avoided playing New Zealand and it's it's such a massive occasion. I, I gen, regardless of form and our chances to win and all of those things that we'll get into in a second, I'm really just looking forward to it. I just think it's just a, especially given 
our story of the last five years with New Zealand as we got closer, closer, got over the line, you know, then beat them a second time to, you know, and, and, and it's built up this rivalry. And now we get to play them in a knockout game in the World Cup. It's just class. Yeah, and like, and to be honest, I actually think that's the biggest challenge for this Irish team. Like, I, they would have to be robots to not have some psychological baggage from the previous quarterfinal history, like, and the way that goes, especially when you're in that moment. And then you're against a team who given what they've done the last two World Cups, like that's definitely looming over you as well. And also there's the... Like, do you remember how honest uh, a couple of Irish players were about how it felt the moments in, when, in, in Dublin when they thought they'd finally beaten New Zealand and in the final moments New Zealand were attacking and in their mind... like I remember, I think it might have been Jack McGrath even who obviously gave away the penalty at the time saying at times like, oh shit, it's happening again. Like here we go. Like it was there. They were like... Because they hadn't beaten this New Zealand team, it was so clearly in their minds and it's exact... Like, it's a really similar... I don't care. Like people seem to totally overlook the importance of psychology in sport but it's massive like it's such a huge thing and I think that that is actually the, the biggest thing for this team looking at a qualifying like this is a this is a massive occasion for them both because of the opposition and because of the stage that they're playing them at and to, to be, I actually think that's the, the biggest thing that they'll have to overcome uh, on Saturday I think I agree I think the quarterfinal thing though can be a tiny bit overblown just because of so the last time we played Argentina we were favourites before that we played Wales were favourites even if we're not technically favourites for both those games Ireland are going to go into them believing they can win then before that they didn't make the quarterfinal no. before that they're playing uh, France in a game that like I imagine France were favourites for, but Ireland wouldn't have been far off in 2003, and we were just blitzed in the first 20 minutes. But again, a lot of expectation there, you know? No quarterfinal in 99. 95, you're in a completely different stratosphere, a different world, but again, like, would have been massive underdogs to France, but, you know, you almost take that out. That's only the, the third ever Rugby World Cup. But the last time we played, and also you're used to playing France, we're playing them every year, you know, but the last time we did you know, play against like an overwhelming favourite. The team that went on to go and win the World Cup was Australia in 91, you know, and very, very nearly did it. There is, I, I look, it's, that's completely and utterly irrelevant, but I just do think that there's a, there's a different thing. They're playing the All Blacks. They're looking to shock them. They're looking to prove to the world that what they did in 2016 and 2018 wasn't a fluke. I actually think the kind of quarterfinal hoodoo isn't going to come into it. And I, I hope that's true anyway, because like suddenly... The pressure will be on a bigger picture story of them not getting past the quarterfinals again down the line. This week, there's no pressure because they're four to one underdogs. Yeah. Or whatever it is, you know. So I think it's about can we match up to the All Blacks? And can we match up to the All Blacks? Because you've been teasing me. You haven't told me exactly how it, how it is with a theory that, um, you know, Ireland and Joe Schmidt in particular might not have had the greatest World Cup of all time. They might not have had the greatest 2019 of all time, but the last time they played New Zealand in 2018, they were successful. And that the last year has been all building up towards this game. In, yeah, I guess... In, in a way, in a way. In a sense. Like, yeah, like I think like... Um, there's no doubt that I think George Smith would have spent the last four years thinking about this game above all else really. Is that what do you do in the quarterfinal game? And it's funny, like I was looking... Because of this week and the nature of this, I've kind of, you're rewatching a huge amount of Ireland games and you're looking for different things. And it's like, you know, uh, we spoke about Hanson earlier. This week he was talking about preparing against a George Smith team and, you know, maybe we'll be able to change the picture on him because he does so much detail and homework on his team. And it's like, that's probably true. But I am strongly starting to believe that Joe Schmidt has definitely set different pictures for New Zealand as well. So, or for whoever he's playing in the qualifying. Like, I think that he is absolutely conscious of the fact that when he's playing against um, Scotland or Samoa or Russia or Japan, he's not just playing against Jamie Joseph or Gregor Townsend. He's playing against Warren Gatland or um, Erasmus or Hansen. Like the, the, he's conscious of what their perception, I suppose, is of Ireland. So I'm not saying that he overlooked them, but he just is conscious of that. So say, say for example, you look at what they did against Scotland and they did it. They kicked a huge amount of ball. They went played that kind of game plan, um, and then they played Japan. And people were looking at it like, what is that? So I, I do think they were well prepped on Japan. I think they tried to expose them out wide. That's you saw crossfield kicks the earls and the Jack Hartys uh, at the start of the game, like that kind of stuff. They were trying to get at a team who play with a narrow enough defensive system, but at the same time, like I do think he was conscious of the fact that they need to set uh, a game or set something up. Like it can't be a sitting target for any sort of team that are coming down the tracks at the weekend again there was small little elements of stuff that I thought was interesting like there was nothing really that sophisticated about their lineup because they didn't have to be like we still haven't really seen something other than the Scotland's wrapping around the short side something that 
out there with their lineouts. Uh, Johnny Sexton bringing back in the loop play a week before they're playing the quarterfinal is very interesting. Like, why mm. is he doing that? The reason that I think the, that actually works is that you're fixing the outside defender now. It's kind of man and ball. So as he comes around, it's not... It's, if he's running down that channel 10 gives the ball to 12 and wraps around then it's not the 10 who's going to make the tackle it's the 13 who has to stand into the channel so you're fixing a defender to give to somebody who's in a 12 channel the chance to spread the ball wide if that's Robbie Henshaw who's got pretty decent hands that's a great thing um, or at least he should have decent hands he probably didn't demonstrate it as much as he should have no against, not, not uh, this not um, in his first week back more. for sure but like, yeah. like, so all of this like what I'm saying is that I think that like Schmidt is you're, you're generally you're trying to craft a, uh, a picture for a team you're trying to set something up and he is kind of set it up so that there's is different like I couldn't tell you for definite how Ireland would play on Saturday now like it, it's not as set in stone I'm talking about style here not te- uh, team wise it's not set in stone as it would be before and I like I think that's interesting that there he, he's clearly worked on different elements of trying to craft this team towards uh, a quarterfinal I think and like so ultimately when you're looking at how they're going to prep for New Zealand you probably go after them on the wing because you've got two very inexperienced wingers mm. In doing that, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. You can go back to the kicking game. We talked about how England hunted Ireland's wingers and kind of bullied them in the air a bit. I I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Ireland do something similar to New Zealand. And I think they can have uh, actually a degree of joy with that. Like, New Zealand aren't defensively as good a team as basically Wales, England, or South Africa, actually. They're, like, they're, their best form of defence is their counter-attack. That's why they... Um, you know, pound people into their backfield. They've got three players at times in the backfield trying to, you know, punish your inaccuracy. But yeah. Ireland aren't inaccurate under Joshua. They're incredibly accurate. That's the style of rugby they play. So if they, you know, land a box kick on top of Bridges or, or, or Severis, it's not going to be one that they're going to be able to run back. It's going to be one where Scottdale is up in his air choking him out, where Rob Carney is, you know, coming like a train, kind of compete in the air. He's getting up really high. He, if they do end up trying to kick the ball back, I wouldn't be surprised if you suddenly see the CJ Sander drop off into the backfield. And if you kick to him, he'll run straight down the throat, try and isolate those. That's what they want. Like, they want mismatches mm. in that kind of system. So I think, like, that's ultimately what Schmidt is trying to build towards. Like, it, it's building towards a game like this. I, obviously, he wouldn't have known it was New Zealand. I think they probably would have hoped it would have been South Africa. Yeah. But I still think that there's, there's enough elements that he has been... Like, I remember Jamie Joseph said that um, they've been thinking about the Ireland game for three years. Ireland have thinking about it since from Monday. And at the time, it was like, that is total nonsense that Joe Schmidt is so well prefaced. And as I mentioned, there was elements that they clearly prefer for Japan. But at the same time, I do think he might have been slightly right. Like, they were playing the host nation in Japan. You've seen the TV figures that Japan had drawn. Like, they're, all eyes are on those games. And Schmidt wouldn't have wanted to reveal too much of his hand there either. And might have even wanted to, you know, pull a rabbit out of hat a small bit and get teams thinking about how exactly they're going to set up yeah. there. And, I like, I think... The fact they didn't kick the ball at all, basically, in their warm-up games and then kicked it over 30 times against Scotland was clearly a tactic, trying to keep them... By a similar token, I think there is a scope that Ireland might have something similar planned for for Saturday. Johnny Sexton's quotes in this press conference yesterday were interesting to me. Uh, Johnny's not normally one who says too much, but he actually was quite effusive. You know, he, he, he spoke a lot yesterday. And his confusion as to the sort of negativity at home. I know a lot of players are in a bubble and, you know, you can get that in all sports. We're seeing it in GEA this week, you know, from, 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 you know, club players sometimes thinking about like, why is everybody out to get us? You know, that's not what the impression I got from these comments. They might read like that in a headline. It was more kind of a genuine kind of surprise that, uh, they were going to be hit with sort of a negativity because, I, and, I, and for that, that makes me think, are Ireland in a better place than we thought we were? So going into last week's game, there's a question of, like, where's the Conor Murray of two years ago? And Conor Murray came out and had one of his better games. You can't judge anything by what's happening against Samoa, but he was trying the things that he does well and executing them well. And you're like, well, maybe Conor Murray's just been working on some things. You know, as opposed to he's not the player he was, you know. Johnny Sexton has obviously been in fantastic form and Ireland are a completely different team when he's on the field. He will be on the field on Saturday. He wasn't when they lost to Japan. And they obviously just misjudged that game and they probably misjudged their preparation in terms of the heat. They probably misjudged the referee and they misjudged not playing Johnny. There's a few things that are there. They could have still squeaked out a result in that game, despite the fact that they were very, very poor. But other than that 60 minutes when they were poor against Japan, if you take that out, which I'm not sure you can, so I'm not like, I'm holding my hands up here and saying that that's a, it's a big leap of faith. But if you take that 60 minutes out, we're looking at this game 
completely differently on Saturday, like by what we've seen from Ireland so far. And there is that massive, massive thing that Johnny Sexton is there. Yeah, he, absolutely. Yeah, and I think he's absolutely crucial to so much of what they do. Yeah. But I suppose my, my, sorry, I, I I forgot to ask the question that I went on a five minute <laughs> <laughs> five minute preamble for was that like for me that's like that's if Ireland are that confident that they're surprised that there's negativity and that everything is going fine, then all of what you're talking about there, all of like if Joe has tactics, if they're if they're going to be accurate enough to do that, to target the wingers and to go after them and to have a plan to go and beat New Zealand, then you kind of would go and trust this team if they believe in themselves to go and execute that, whether they win the game or not, it's a different question again. Like, Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually to build on that and what I was saying a second ago, like what I mean by the, you're talking about you kind of have to trust in a team. Like I, I, I kind of, it's it's different. It's difficult because a lot of people would say you just have to judge on the evidence of what you see in front of your eyes. And I like, and to a certain extent, I actually hate that kind of idea because you have to analyze the team based off not only what you know they have done but what they can do. Like you have to be able to look at their ceiling and the coach behind them and what they've done. Like you can't just judge. I don't think you limit a body of work to four games, um, like three which were against tier two teams. I yeah. think you have to look at it as a much grander thing about what they're capable of doing. And even within those four games, like say for example, Ireland played this the um, the one three two one attacking uh, shape that they generally set up in. So that's just the way of organizing your forwards. It's really it's actually really really simple. Nearly all teams are playing with it now. It's uh, if the alternative is a two four two, but the one three three one is generally played along like one line. It's a way to get wide to manipulate space. And Ireland have actually have used it in kind of creative ways within that. So say you get an example like um, against Samoa, you had, uh, I think CJ Sander, a lot of people were kind of obsessing about his carries. I actually think he nearly had 10 passes in that game as well. Like he's doing kind of, so if he's at the front of a pod, you t- talk about the tip on for Furlong actually, for example, he's kind of moving the ball there in that pod. So you've got a, a three-man pod who are able to move a ball close to contact kind of trying to manipulate space that way coming around the corner but let's say for example you think about the Russia game when Ireland were a lot slower with the, the ball of the base much more slower coming around the corner the reason that I think sometimes Ireland do that like they play between the two 15s so you've got the two 15 channels they don't go outside them uh, their kicking game is very accurate but when you see Ireland going over and back and people are like what are they doing like they're not mm. going anywhere I think what they're doing is that say if you set up in one three three one, and you've got big, huge ball carriers like Furlong, uh, James Ryan or CJ Sander, if they carry and run, I, I run straight at you in the defensive line and you have to make a big tackle and they make a wrestle and they're really, really clinical with their clear out. So it, you have to exert a huge amount defensively there. They might gain a yard, let's say, and they go over and back and over and back. Now, in that scenario, CJ Sander makes the carry, hits the thing, places the ball, stands back up and he hardly has to move. He's standing in the same place and he's perfectly placed to make another carry. But defence is way more draining and each of these are uh, wrestle. Like They're making these real contests and Ireland are so clinical in those breakdowns within that that maybe the first time you can stop him up at the gain line. But maybe the fourth time you find a soft shoulder or you find the defence is slightly less structured and that's where you can start punching holes. And Ireland have got a load of players who can punch holes. So say if you look at their first, their second try, the furlong try against Samoa, that's starts with a line-out mall which is pretty typical and then from that Ty Byrne makes a straight-up carry and like people are so obsessed with straight-up carries I don't think the straight-up carry is the problem ever it's the intent of the carry what is what are you trying to do with that carry and in this scenario Byrne carries runs straight back like he's coming at an angle literally nearly running back in towards the ruck the reason he does that is because he's hitting a hole so the flanker makes a tackle close to that seven channel around the corner again CJ Sander makes a carry again running really hard to the line next carry then is Bundyaki so Bundyaki comes at a, at a direct line he's coming at an angle back towards the ruck makes a carry into that inside channel Robbie Henshaw makes a really good clear out again accuracy in the play suddenly Bundyaki has come in shot in come at an angle you've Ireland come around the corner uh, with a really deep clear out players are trying to wrap around the corner quickly the defence is slightly less structured and Tyke Furlong has a soft shoulder and a 12 in front of him the same guy who should have been cracking Bundyaki is yeah. suddenly ice and he can do what he did which is boom over the line like that's clever it might not be the most attractive no and, it's not uh, aesthetic no. yeah uh, it, it definitely isn't but it's still clever like there's still yeah. some in, in, in intelligent intent there to it and I think that is where like if that was lacking, you'd be a lot more concerned. And at times, by the way, it was lacking against Japan. Yeah. Like, it definitely was lacking against Japan. And I think that a lot of that might have been down... Uh, I, I was quite critical of the halfbacks at the time. Having watched that game back, I'd be even more critical. But I, I do b- believe that in that kind of scenario, that Ireland have shown enough intent to at least put up a, a pretty big challenge against New Zealand. Can I tell you my concern about that, though, is that while that does work for us the majority of the time, when it isn't, and even against Samoa... 
what Ireland don't seem to be able to do is the other side of the game, which is to go wide in a... Uh, Ireland always find when, when if Ireland are on the line and they're not getting those gaps and they're first man, first man, first man, you know, being stopped two metres out, they eventually go wide always as a last resort. And every time they do it, it looks like an interception. And the amount of times Ireland would go wide to Stockdale, especially this this last week because they obviously weren't really playing with a full-on right winger for the majority of the game. <laughs> but, you know, even in other games, when it would be Stockdale and Earls, it doesn't even make it to them. Yeah. There's a pass shot over the head. There's a They're just incredibly inaccurate and have been throughout the World Cup and probably have been throughout 2019, really, um, with those kind of spread plays. And that's definitely a worry for me because I do think you need to use every weapon in your arsenal against New Zealand, even if you do have the structured game plan that you're talking about for the most part. You need to be able to adjust as well. And I, that's a great point because it leads on to something we're just about to talk to, which is I, I actually think in Schmidt's mind... They don't need to have that kind of credit. I'm not, all I'm saying here, right, by the way, I'm not saying this is the best way to play. I'm just saying this is the way how I think Ireland are going to play. But I think, in, to Schmidt's mind, the reason that he is so like obsessive sometimes about referees, I think, is because it's so much of their game plan is dedicated on, A, their own discipline and being able to force another team into a, an error. And also by when they do screw down in those scenarios by resulting in penalties or something that has been absolutely crucial in this World Cup advantages and in the advantage circumstance that's when I think Ireland will start to you'll see a, a plan to try and go wide a bit more you see the Japan game the first two tries at a case in point they did it against Samoa yeah, as well with, with kicks I suppose I, uh, yeah and, and, and they definitely do have that especially in their arsenal or, we see yeah. it again with Sexton do it yeah but just in terms of the passing, it's, it's funny. I was watching like Wales Uruguay. It's a it's never a great example, but it, it is. They had a similar situation. They were pounding, pounding, pounding. Went wide, skip pass, trying the corner. You know, and it's just like every other team in the world can do that, and you can do that against top level opposition if you have them enough on the ropes. Whereas Ireland, it, it seems to just sail overhead. It seems to be close to an interception. It seems to be defenses up quicker against us than they are against every other team. That must be for a reason. You know, there's yeah. not like that's not because everybody's offside against Ireland or because they're guessing. They know what they're doing. They're up quicker than they are against any other team in the world. You know, and they, and it's just a worry. I think they have that in their like. You look at the um, Murray's pass for Larmer's try yeah, at the weekend, yeah, which true. was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, actually, I think that came on a penalty advantage as well. Um, but I, in, in that sense, like, the re- reason that, again, I'm not saying this is the best strategy, I just think this is the strategy. Uh, the reason that that happens is because it's a really high-risk pass. Like, it's a flat pass with a defence. If you've got a winger worth of salt, he probably should actually make that read. Um, in this circumstance, he doesn't. But, like, and I just don't decide, venture to play low-risk rugby. Like, that's just what they're trying to do in that yeah. circumstance. But when there's an advantage, I think they'll be much more inclined. And that's why uh, a referee like, Nigel Owens is, it's been confirmed as referee for the weekend mm. that's why I think he actually has a huge part in that because Ireland are really kind of hoping that the referees are on top of if the, you've got a, you know a backward trying to slow down a ball if you've got a defence who are offside that they really need other t- uh, referees to be on top of that because if they're not it, they start to look like they're kind of stagnant a small bit so I'm interested what you think of Owens so he's I prefer him than one of his touch judges who's Angus Gardner our old friend so Maybe he'll be looking at the New Zealand offside line that he was so obsessed with in the Ireland uh, yeah. Ireland Japan game. Maybe he'll see those extra couple of meters one way or the other. But Nigel Owens is the referee. Ireland's record uh, nineteen tests. This is going to be his twentieth test uh, in charge Ireland, of Ireland, it, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, so he's done nineteen so far, including his first ever game, which was in Japan against Japan. Uh, back in 2005, his first ever test match. So doing a little bit of uh, Nigel Owens research today. Nineteen tests, ten wins, nine defeats. Very even, right? But uh, unfortunately, he's also done three Ireland versus New Zealand games. They were 0-3. People will remember two of them very well. Uh, the first one was the, the first test in 2012 when Ireland were well beaten over there. The second one was the Christchurch game where Ireland could have got a win slash draw and lost to a late Dan Carter drop goal. That was 22-19. I remember there being some issue uh, at that time that I can't specifically remember the details of. Yeah, it was... Uh, the prop but it was a Mike Ross knock on yeah. at the very end that, that wasn't the knock on yeah, yeah. that wasn't it. and th- so there was a scrum issue as well I think was there a, 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 this is 
I'm hazy enough on this, yeah. so don't hold me to this. You're right about Mike Ross, though, yeah. I think there was a scrum issue as well. I remember uh, being I remember being fairly annoyed that the referee had, had given New Zealand that opportunity to go and get what was a brilliant drop goal in the end and win the game that they probably did deserve to win despite a really good Irish performance. Ireland people will remember lost 16-0 the week after. But then he also refereed the following year in uh, the Viva Stadium in November where Ireland became closer than they've ever come before to beating New Zealand at that time. 24-22 defeat when he gave uh, Ireland had possession to just need to close it out Jack McGrath was rightly given a penalty against for going in off his feet at the side of the ruck New Zealand 747 phases later Ryan Crotty got over in the corner, in the corner yeah. and beaten so like I suppose I just bring that up because there is a lot of talk today that Nigel Owens is one of those referees who is seen I would suggests probably this is very unfair but there's definitely a, a thought a thought out there that owns is one of the referees who is seduced by the myth of the all blacks and possibly referees them differently than he does everybody else so while there is a natural tendency to be happy about the familiar face and somebody that uh you know that ireland all of the players will be very familiar with from pro 14 level all the way up to international level they'll see him so regularly he'll know them all very very well he's also somebody that tends new zealand tend to win when he's he, he was the he was the ref in the 2015 uh world cup final um new zealand australia and there's a thought out there that again might be just irish paranoia that the offside line or the rook rules are different for New Zealand than they are for whoever the opposition are, you know. So going back to your point of a few minutes ago of the what like how important that role is and why Joe Schmidt is so obsessive with it, if that is the case, which again I think is something that we just have to see for ourselves on Saturday rather than predicting it, then that is definitely just something that will massively work against us and really worry but you have to look at it the other way is that two of the closest times we ever got to New Zealand other than the two times we beat them were with Nigel Owens as a referee yeah if I was a if I'm Julian Savat or Peter Mahoney I'm delighted that Nigel Owens is referee in this game I think you've got because uh, he's a man who doesn't really uh, believe uh, in breakdown penalties yeah, yeah you've got <laughs> a lot more license in the ruck um, than, than you want if I'm any sort of if I'm Johnny Sexton or if I'm um like and this goes for uh, like New Zealand as well. Actually, by the way, if I'm Barrett or if I'm Moanga, I'm kind of raising that because I think the defensive line might be a bit more um, lax uh, in terms of the policing and that. But I, like, given the uh, not not to be I as I've said, constant, but I kind of don't like referee conversations. But given the alternatives, I don't think it's a bad choice. Uh, yeah. I think the he's been one of the better referees in this tournament actually um, like really sort of stuff like the way you communicate with players and stuff I think is actually kind of important now and I just think we'll, we'll win you a lot of talk Nick Barry who a lot of people were kind of be disappointed didn't get a game yeah. his communication with players is one thing that really kind of puts stands him apart that he's just he seems to be like endeavouring I think I know they all are endeavouring to do their absolutely best but he really seems to try to um like articulate his decisions and I think that just makes that tad bit easier if even if they are you know slightly harsh or uh, I, th- I think it was a Jack Lamb who had a, an issue with a couple of his calls at the weekend and eventually made that quite clear but like I'm look, not I'm not the one going <laughs> off my feet or uh, yeah. I'm not the one with the high tackles yeah yeah um, but yeah like look ultimately I don't think it's that bad a, a draw like I, I think it, it should play in the hands of the art like it went in defensively while Ireland rely on their backers to slow down the ball they weren't able to do that against Japan so that's why Japan's um Rook speed was really, really high, and at the same time as well, I think Japan had a pass to rook ratio of like one point seven, and like that is interlinked with the fact that they can get such quick ball because like if you a if they're that passable lower, you know that there was a defense that was more organized and they had just less time to get that ball off. You'd see a lot more kind of one up carrying and stuff like that. So ultimately, I think that would probably suit Ireland as well. Actually, like I don't think it's a by any means a bad thing. Yeah. Um. Okay. Team selection. Then I think we're looking at. The only issues being his fullback is Rob Carney coming in for Jordan Armour, rightly or wrongly. I yeah, I, I mean, you can debate the merits of it all you want. To but think he there's is. no doubt that he's coming yeah, in. Yeah, and Larmer sits on the bench. Then. Yeah, twenty three. Um, yeah. Back row is it going to end up being like I talked about before the World Cup? Even that we're just going to end up. It's just going to be a Matinee, Sander, and Van der Fleer. Yeah, I think it, yeah. it, it will be. And I, I actually don't know if that's necessarily that a bad thing. I think yeah. you, when you've got somebody like so you need to hunt that in a scenario like that. You need players who like with a huge appetite for work. I think if it's a South African game and you need an extra ball carrier, that maybe somebody like Rosewood comes into the conversation. Um, the only player that in this scenario that might come to the conversation is like a breakdown specialist, spot like Ty Byrne. But I don't think he has the same stock as Peter Matney does. So I, again. 
I don't think there's any changes there yeah. either. And Josh Van der has been outstanding, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. One of the players that you could look at consistently for Ireland. Uh, okay, last thing then, we'll get to Michael Lina. Have New Zealand shown you any cracks in their three games and only really, let's face it, one game because... You know, in Namibia, and uh, I can't even remember the other team they played. USA? No, no, no. Uh, they played Namibia and Canada. Canada. There we go. Yeah, they're not really going to give us many clues as to what the holes might be in uh, New Zealand play defense, as you hinted at. But we saw, like that. You know, they had patches against South Africa, and it was enough to win the game. But if you're looking at it without a scoreboard, you'd be thinking South Africa were probably the team on top for the majority of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like. <laughs> Like the Namibia game, I don't know if you can read much into it, but the Namibia and South Africa game, uh, New Zealand missed 20, over twenty five tackles in both games, which is just I think like, is is interesting. And I actually don't think you can do that against Ireland. Other like other teams won't punish you as well. Or sometimes that's like a team spreading it wide, and you, we talked about this before, like a centre shooting up, trying to drive a player back in field. These are positive missed tackles. Uh, I don't think the, in the against Ireland. The, the, Ireland will give you as much scope to have positive missed tackles because they don't go as wide as much so if you're missing a tackle you're missing a tackle in a channel uh, which will just naturally lead to kind of uh, line breaks um, I think that's where I think they'll go after them like I think they'll go after them try and expose those kind of defensive abilities Re, I, like, I would expect to see uh, a hugely tailored game to get after those wingers like I, I, I mean the Colin Murray box kick will, I think it'll be back with a vengeance and you'll see a huge amount of kind of like all the stuff that Ireland have been annoyed by recently whether that be kind of this kind of shepherding and the channels and all this kind of stuff I would expect to see a lot of Ireland actually become um, exponents of that as well and like they're for which it's worth bear in mind in these referees conditions they're a pretty shrewd team like as well at the same time so like all of that I think leaves you with you need to be phenomenally accurate against New Zealand and I also do think if they aren't they'll cut you open like they've got a huge amount of scope to reach a ceiling but Ireland have demonstrated the ability to be phenomenally accurate and to get after that wingers and maybe expose them slightly there as well this has been enormously positive and has put me in a really good mood, right? <laughs> but ultimately, if I was to put a gun to your head and you had a literal, had to pick a uh, result, am I right in saying you'd still pick New Zealand? I, uh, like, Are you leaning that far that you I, might even pick Ireland? I, I, I'm I, delighted you've given us a chance even. Like, uh, I really think there's a huge performance coming from Ireland on Saturday. I, I, I just... All of those indicators that um, I've heard. Now that is like this cognitive bias there as well. I'm looking at the thing, but like, uh, yeah. And then, at the, but at the same time, I think George Smith would much rather this scenario than he might rather the 2015 scenario or the 2011 scenario. This is a different New Zealand team to the one we saw in 2015 or 2011. Uh, like, there's, there's been a bit more frailty about them yeah. in under the. Co- I'm going to say Ireland. Like, I'll, oh, <laughs> oh, I look, I'm excited to hear you say Ireland as much as I wanted us written off. But uh, look, we'll we'll come back next Tuesday and see, you know, <laughs> whether you're right or not. Uh, I'll take a big performance with the possibility of a win in the, la- the last 10 yeah, minutes. But like, unfortunately, I will say New Zealand as much as I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I will uh, gladly, gladly take the defeat in this one in our, in our selections competition. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the other quarterfinals, but you've been speaking to World Cup winner and Aussie legend Michael Lina. Yeah, so I was speaking to Australian rugby legend and Heineken rugby ambassador Michael Lina. So Michael Lina was speaking ahead of the upcoming quarterfinals at the Rugby World Cup Japan, um, and Heineken is obviously the official World Cup partner to Rugby World Cup 2019 in Japan. I want to ask you about your impressions of Ireland in a second, but we might start with Australia first. Mm-hmm. And I know I read your article on Sunday and the Sunday Times, and one thing I was really curious to ask you about was a lot of people kind of focus on Australia's, I suppose, expansive rugby. But one thing that I think was interesting was that you were impressed with their tight five work. And I imagine that's something that's going to be pretty important looking ahead to England. Yeah, well, it's it's you know, traditionally we're perceived to not have a great tight five, um, and particularly against England over the past sort of five, six, seven decade years or decade, um, that's sort of come to fruition in big games where the type 5 particularly at scrum time gets put under pressure and rightly or wrongly, you know, they get penalised etc. So there seems to be a weakness there. But I think this time around our type 5 seems to be reasonably settled. Um, We seem to be performing pretty well there Um, and we've got good backup particularly in props and uh, hookers. So I'm not saying that we're going to dominate England on the weekend, um, but I think we're quite competent compared to maybe where we've been in the past. 
A player that a lot of Irish fans would know very familiar actually is David Pocock and I mm. suppose coming into this tournament he would have been earmarked as somebody that people would look out for and now there's speculation that he might not even start. Yeah. Can you maybe try give us some insight as to what exactly is happening there? Well, he's been injured for the vast majority of the year and was selected basically for the World Cup on the basis of you know half a game or something like that. But he's such a good player and, and we know what he can bring to the party. Um, so he's a, an important member of the team. Um, and in the last World Cup, um, you know, Australia had two sevens, mainly Pocock and Hooper playing together in tandem and they worked very well together and uh, turned over a lot of ball, made a lot of tackles, all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, there's probably a few other teams such as the All Blacks that are playing two sevens, England probably playing two sevens as well. So it's sort of become a little bit of a um, norm really to, for teams to do that. However, with Australia at the moment, we we've sort of tended to look at maybe with Pocock's absence due to injury some bigger ball carriers in the back row at six and, and eight and you know that seems to have given us a little bit more punch up front um, particularly against a team like England who do have a lot of big men and big ball carriers into the opposition so um, also from a line-out point of view um, you know David Pocock and Michael Hooper you know maybe they're not they're, they, we, it means we're one short of a line-out jumper there so gives us more options if he's not playing however it'll be a brave man that leaves out David Pocock from a big game like this and and Michael Hooper's the captain um, so and he's been captain for a long time so it's a big decision to leave him out and I don't know whether they will or not but uh, I'm no doubt we'll see both of them on the pitch at some stage during the game. I want to ask you about the impressions of Ireland particularly in terms of their actual players because I think they come up against probably the best team in the world on Saturday and naturally the kind of matchups you look at is whether or not Ireland have any world class players and you know we would certainly uh, I suppose look at it from our own you know, interest perspective but I'm curious from you looking from the outside in is there any players in particular that might catch your eye? Oh, um, yeah, it's been an old measure even back when I played you know in 91 and Dwyer Bob Dwyer our coach would have said you know look at how many players are you know would get into a world 15 and you know at the time we, there was probably four or five that I would could have done and that's sort of been a bit of a measure since I, I, I think rugby's changed a little bit now where yes you can have world-class players but it's how that how the team comes together and when we look at Japan over the last few weeks and I mean there's not many players that even you know the name of in there yet as a team they've been outstanding so and uh, there's, there's, there is a lot of good players in the Irish team. There's a lot of good young guys coming through as well. And the blending experience with youth um, and enthusiasm, I think, is very important. And Ireland's got that. So, and I suppose maybe moving on to that, we look at their coach, who, again, somebody in 2018 would have been a world-class coach. Like, there's a strain of criticism, certainly within some quarters in Ireland, that Joe Schmidt is too risk-adverse, that maybe his style of rugby is, is you know, played to the percentages. Mm. And from looking from the outside in, again, I'm wondering, would you agree with that? Um, I, I was, yeah, risk-adverse, yes, it probably is, and that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, you've got a, particularly against the current All Blacks, you look at, the All Blacks at the moment, they're you know, often during, particularly in the first half, they'll have less territory and less possession than the opposition, yet you look at the scoreboard and they're in front. A couple of turnovers and they, they, they're so good at converting turnovers and uh, mistakes from the opposition yeah. into points. And if you can reduce that down, um, which being risk averse is probably what that's trying to do, um, it limits their chances. And they like to try and play from broken play. And if you can limit the fact that and keep things a little bit more structured, um, I think that sort of would might frustrate them a little bit and not give them chances. And and also, you know, Farrell's he's got a pretty good track record at sort of um, defensive structures against the All Blacks. So you put those two things together, and you try and restrict New Zealand's ball and their opportunities, and also knock them over when they have it and cause them to have mistakes or give away penalties and all of a sudden you're in front of the scoreboard and get New Zealand the momentum for you and and New Zealand are not used to being behind or under pressure because they very rarely are and once you get them there it's not very easy to do but once you get them there um, because they haven't experienced much it before it tends to it tends to like most teams a little bit of panic sets in 
But it's not easy to get them to that point, though. <laughs> the question of styles is an interesting one because I think if we go back to maybe 2015 and post that uh, World Cup, the kind of there was this narrative that maybe because of the performance of the Northern Hemisphere teams, that their style they were playing, that the teams need to become more expansive. That attacking rugby was was the way forward. And if anything, we probably actually saw the opposite of that. We saw you know coaches like Andy Farrell and John Mitchell craft these really you know abrasive and 14 men defensive lines. And in Australia, they seem to have a really kind of inherent way of playing. They always have really this kind of openness, massive rugby. Do you think that there is a demand on teams now to become more creative? Like, is there is there space for more than one style? I think so, and and I I've, I think teams, really good teams, have different ways of doing it. Um, I've always said that great teams have different ways of winning games. Now, whether that's through to the defence whether that's through set-piece, set whether that's through playing with the ball in hand or attacking kicks and tactical kicking, etc. You put all those things together and if a team can sort of move around and in and out of each of those and do it really well, they're a pretty good team. And so that's where I think um, teams that are able to... Australia, for example, you mentioned there, they play with the ball a lot and that's been our traditional way, but I would, I would say that we're not... We don't have enough variety at the moment. If you look over the last year or so, the stats are that we're probably one of the teams in the world that kicks the least. And that, while that's admirable, it makes um, the opposition have to um, less uh, less in doubt. You know, if, if we're not going to kick the ball, they don't have to defend that. So they can stand up and just knock us over. And I actually think I'd like to see us become a little bit more unpredictable in that regard. And if they're rushing up, put it behind them, and they won't come up as quick next time. So. There's ways of doing things, and maybe you know Australia hasn't played their hand in all that just yet. I don't know, but um, I just like the fact that there's different ways of winning games. I think Australia won the World Cup in '99 on a defensive effort that was probably the best in the world, as opposed to any great attacking play. So that was Heineken Rugby Ambassador Michael Lina. Uh, Heineken is the official worldwide partner to Rugby World Cup 2019 in Japan. What a legend. Um, great to hear from Michael there. Morris, we're nearly time to go. You've already picked Ireland. You know, we've heard from Michael Lina. There's not much, many, many more heights we can hit on this podcast. <laughs> uh, just want to talk a little bit about the other quarterfinals. But before I do, we haven't talked about last weekend. Ireland obviously beat Samoa. That was great. We had cancelled games in England versus France and New Zealand versus Italy, which is a shame and absolutely does undermine the World Cup. I don't want to gloss over it, but I just feel like it's been talked about a lot of places and I don't think it should be um, dismissed in any way either, you know, but uh, not ideal. Um, And also, Japan backed up their performance against Ireland with an absolutely brilliant display, at least for the, the, you know, maybe the middle 50 minutes. Oh, it was magic to watch, uh, yeah. against, against Scotland. They were absolutely fantastic. They just play such exciting rugby. They're the best team to watch in the World Cup, without a doubt. Whether that's good enough now when they play South Africa this weekend is going to be fascinating. I can't wait. Like, I'll ask you how you think that's going to go in a sec. But I do want to talk about the other side of that game, which was Scotland. I've seen, you know... Obviously, Gregor Townsend was being quite balshy in the lead up to that game, and you can't blame him. Like you know, they they obviously wanted to to play a game to decide their fate rather than it being decided by weather. Um, but you know, the threatening of legal action and all made Scotland kind of a punchline. I don't think that deserves to make them a punchline. However, their performances in this World Cup have been atrocious, and they were so bad against Ireland. They were so bad against Ireland that even though we won what seemed like our biggest game at the time by well over twenty points and conceded three points, even in Irish media, we were talking about, you can't judge that. Scotland were so bad. Yet you expected them somehow to go and lift themselves against Japan, and they came out and were beaten at halftime, absolutely beaten off the field, no no game plan. Didn't seem to watch Ireland versus Japan at all because they didn't learn anything from Ireland's mistakes in that game, which really surprised me for a coach like Townsend, who's supposed to be such a kind of a technical coach. Um, and I saw, I saw, I saw their um, World Cup being described. I think it was in the Guardian yesterday as a Jekyll and Hyde World Cup. I was like, "Well, where was the Jekyll?" I didn't <laughs> see him. It was a full-on Doctor Hyde World Cup from Scotland. You know, they were at, like where they have gone. We talked about it in the lead up. I think we talked to it on Steve, to Stephen Ferris in the build-up podcast, and he said something similar on TV. Is like they've been the coming team for ten years, and we've been waiting for the oh the Scotland revival, and Scotland will be dangerous this year, and it's just not happening, and it's worse again. Yeah, like it's it's funny actually. This kind of encompasses the style talk that um, 
that Ireland seems to be gripped in at the minute. Like, and I've always said, like, I do think this kind of you have to judge your style based on what's at your disposal and stuff like that. And like, I firmly believe that Scotland have played better rugby under Townsend than they did under Cotter, but that does not make them a better team. And like, I, I, I don't understand where this argument has come from that they're a better team now. There's no evidence of that. Like, yeah. people talk about depth. Yeah, you've got better players, but what are they doing? Like, what are those players actually doing on a field? And yeah. like, the, nobody is more critical of. Scotland then internally I think there's, there's been really damning recently and like some of them it's like they're really actually confused in so much of what they do which is kind of baffling like yeah. I, I don't understand if like, you've got somebody like like Finn Russell who I have spoken in the past who I'm a huge fan of and Finn Russell is showing these mad loop passes wide which we've talked about in the past like it doesn't fix any defence like why it's it's so much it works so much better if you go through the hands quickly than a player going from 10 and throwing a skip pass out wide and allowing everybody to nice it's really easy to defend against yeah. you drift across nicely and then at the same time so Finn Russell is showing those kind of passes allowing them to drift across Greg Laidlaw is doing the totally opposite by launching kind of aimless <laughs> kick. And then on top of all of it, you've got Stuart Hogg in the backfield who sometimes it looks like he's going to run, but it gets isolated and gets turned over. Sometimes kicks, and it's an aimless kick straight down the throat of a, a team like Japan. Like Japan, who were so expansive. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense that to do one or the other. So there doesn't seem to be a plan, either like a bridge between each. Like if you're going to, if you're built to be a... Uh, counter-attacking teams you'd see players like Maitland or even Finn Russell coming back around like on the shoulder you'd see a well-resourced rook when he does carry into contact that doesn't happen but they don't have a good kick chase when they do kick so what was their plan initially anyway like it just yeah looks, what did they want to happen yeah, yeah. Like it, so much of their outcomes do look um, confused and yeah. it's a shame because I actually think that there's so many there's a huge like We've been saying this, for, as you said, for 10 years, but there's huge, huge potential in that There's good that rugby team, players, yeah. yeah. But I think, as well, it's like picking on players rather than a team. Like, Laidlaw and Finn Russell is not as a half-back partnership. partnership. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. They play two completely different styles of rugby, and your 9-10 have to be in sync with each other, and they're clearly not. And it just, it, it, it just beggars belief that a professional international team with a four-year build-up into a World Cup, the same as everybody else, could go out and just be so clueless. And it, it actually, you know what, it actually kind of annoys me because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of people that would like an international coaching job. And Gregor Townsend is someone that's very highly thought of by himself as much as anybody. And, you know, what he did with Glasgow, I think, was a little bit overrated because he was basically coaching an international team at club level for, you know, give or take, five or six players. And I don't think he's kicked it on at all with Scotland, I have to say. I think he's been pretty poor. Um, the other thing then, before just on, on this week's quarterfinals, you mentioned Nick Berry earlier. I actually just specifically wanted to make a point of him because I do give out about referees and you don't like it and all this. I thought he was outside. I thought he was the standout performer of everybody that we saw on the field in, <laughs> in, uh, in the game on Saturday between Ireland and Samoa. And the reason for that as well is like, that goes in with you have to make a hard decision. I feel very, very sorry that Bundyaki's World Cup is over. I feel very, I feel he's hard done by. But the law is correct yeah. and needs to, a few people need to be hard done by. A few people need to be robbed almost of their dream for this, for the long term benefit of the game. I agree, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's tough. And also, there was a difference between the two tackles and the yellow card, which people said was harsh on Samoa. You know what wasn't? We should again same thing. We need to the responsibility needs to be in like the, an unreasonable responsibility needs to be in the tackler at the moment. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that it is borderline unreasonable. They just need to be coached into it. And as you said, his communication with the players, everything throughout the game, his communication with his touch judges and TMO, the way he explained the game, the way he talked to. Uh, by the way, I I don't know whether this was a different thing in the mic or not, or whether it was the way the ref told the players instead of shouting it out, he just told nine that you've got an advantage. I've never heard it so much. McGrath did it and Murray did it where they were shouting to the backs that we've got an advantage. Yeah, you could keep, you could hear it on TV before I, I've never heard that before I, I think that is part of what I was talking about earlier about this is the time to go wide that the advantage is, is nearly like a call that we can take a we can yeah. roll ro- 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 that, that, like, okay. that, uh, it was really interesting Murray was sc- like a scream mm. now I did when I maybe went, it's the refs normally scream it whereas yeah. he just told the nine kind of quietly you know um, but he did actually the I'm nearly certain uh, in that Japan game as well, there was a uh, real, like a deafening call that you can hear on the ref mic as well of advantage, advantage before uh, Jack Carty hit the first, the uh, guy ring rose try. Just before yeah. that, if people watch that back, I think there's also a, a shout there as well that the, this is on basically. England, Australia, Saturday morning, followed by Ireland, New Zealand. We'll obviously have talked about that. Wales, France, Saturday, Sunday morning, followed by Japan, South Africa. 
what jumps out to you? We've got about two minutes. I think the of the English Australia game of Ireland. I, I like I France are uh, are, are France like you talked about. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Scotland. And so I, th- I think that could be uh, given the trend line of those teams. I think that could be uh, slightly one sided. I think. Do you think so? Yeah, I think it might be. Yeah, yeah. I think Japan needed everything to. Um, go in their favour before this game and the fact that like we talked about true teams some of Japan's clearouts have I don't want to like you give them all the praise that they're due but some of their I'm talking about an attacking sense here now so the so the way they hit rooks uh, the sides they hit rooks at the angles hit rooks and the, the, like and they've got a referee who's very particular on stuff like that uh, at the weekend in Wayne Barnes who I think is the best referee in the tournament actually but he, he, that kind of stuff they won't have enough leeway with as well as that they're coming up t- like you talked about Scotland not learning from the past times there's no questions that South Africa yes. will have run for pass, and there's no question that they've got pairs in De Klerk and Pollard who will put boot the ball, who like will kick them around the park. Who have actually they did this already in the uh, in the warm up game they, when they put thirty points on them, like yeah. who who will move the all sides, who will suffocate them in defence. Like the, the, that high line wingers, when you see a team trying to force width, that can oftentimes actually prove advantageous. Like sometimes the team is weakest in their center when you have such an emphasis on what what's what south africa do so uh even that game as well you, like i'm not sure i'd love to see i think for the tournament's sake as well you'd love to see japan progress but of all of them i think the england australia game both because of england's form in this tournament australia coming back into form and like the big thing for me just finally on australia like everyone talks again about expansive rugby. i'm not against expansive rugby it sounds like i am on this on this podcast but the big thing for me is south africa's tight five uh, sorry australia's tight five and how much they've actually came up and the way they matched wales physically and like i just wonder will if england can't exert themselves as much as they wanted there where do they go next like have mm. they shown that they actually they haven't shown the ability to do that in this tournament so it just means that i think that's a question that we haven't seen asked of this england team yet and for, for that yeah. reason I, I can't wait for that game australia have been weird they've like they're very I, weird, I, I keep yeah. turning on their games when they're like not beating minnows and then i watch them for 20 minutes and they're fantastic <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. i haven't seen them being poor yet but all the score lines that when i've joined the games have suggested they've been awful and by the way that includes the wales game they were being hammered when i turned it on i missed the first half of that game and then they were the best team i've ever seen for the next uh for the next 40 minutes or uh, 50 minutes or so but didn't win that game um i don't know you know the fact that you would actually think that a, a, t- a team that goes that close to Wales can go that close to England yeah. almost automatically, like you know, in a very similar kind of way. I hope you're right. There's a there's a thing about this where we take Ireland New Zealand out of it, which we we started off this podcast as saying is the biggest could be the biggest game in Irish rugby history, right? You take that out of it, and even still, you've got the best rugby weekend of the last four years the world cup quarterfinal weekend is the best thing in rugby is four knockout do or die pinnacle of the game matches on over the course of two days you can't get much better than yeah that. i i agree with you i yeah. think it's uh it's an unbelievably exciting i think this, like this tournament in a lot of ways um i honestly wouldn't have been as one over as certain people have but like it, it is poised to deliver now like this could be a a hugely hugely entertaining weekend can't wait for it um stay tuned this week we'll have uh Stephen ferris on the build-up tomorrow we'll have uh or on thursday morning we'll have brent pope on thursday as well um for the brent pope rugby world cup show and we'll have lots more on site as well um so do keep tuned for that and we myself and morris will talk to you next tuesday when ireland will be looking forward to a semi-final of the world cup against australia we're gonna say (laughs) for, for the purposes of this take it easy